Let's turn then to our ninth study in Colossians. We are remembering our freedom in Christ. And we're going to read from Colossians 2, 8 through 15. Colossians 2, thank you Lord, 8 through 15. Paul writes, see to it that no one takes you captive. Notice that? We were talking about the transgender issue. People are being taken captive. Young people, children even, being taken captive. All right, see too that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised, in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Let's end our scripture there. Triumphing over them the powers and the authorities of this world by the cross. Father, we pray a blessing upon these scriptures and familiar they are to many of us. But open the word of God to us again, our hearts to the word, as we are reminded by the Apostle that it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And yet, Father, Paul warns about those who are being bound, those who are being taken captive within the confines of the church. This grieves us because we understand this is happening today, as it did in Paul's day. And so lead us through these scriptures as we are reminded of these truths in Christ's name. Amen. I want to begin by... Focusing upon imitations. Imitations. Paul warns us in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. Please firstly note that there is nothing wrong with philosophy. With understanding how people think. As an undergraduate, I spent 
time studying philosophy, the philosophy of religion, to be more precise. It was all told a good discipline for me. Paul isn't dismissing philosophy per se, a genuine love of wisdom, which is what the world philosophy really means. No, Paul is talking here about a sham philosophy, which depends on, he says, on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. So basically, as I understand it, Paul is telling us to beware of being deceived by imitations. Imitations. Which is anything other than Christ. Last time I was in Hong Kong, I broke my wristwatch at the airport on the way out there. Uh, and so I visited a street market because I wanted to buy a new wristwatch, as you do. On one of the stalls, I was surveying the watches on sale, and the vendor, rather shiftfully, all of a sudden, looking around, took a watch out from underneath the counter and shoved it in front of my nose. It was a Rolex watch. I thought, my, how much? I thought. I was suspicious. But I couldn't resist the temptation of owning a Rolex watch. My pride got the better of me, I'm afraid. And so I purchased this Rolex watch. Well, it didn't last too long. I think I was only home after about two or three weeks and it packed in. Obviously, it was a genuine imitation. It looked like the real thing. Not that I've seen a real Rolex, I don't think. But it looked like the real thing. But it was a genuine imitation. It was a cheap fake. Now, Scripture says, don't let anyone do that to you with your faith. There are many things, my friends, in the realm of spirituality, even within the confines of what we would consider to be the Christian church, that look like the real thing. But they are fake. How do we know they are fake? Because if they do not depend upon Christ, then they depend upon human tradition. Or they depend upon, says the Apostle Paul, uh, the principles of this world. And so they are imitation. Don't let, Paul says, anyone deceive you with hollow and deceptive philosophy. Brethren, it was happening in the Apostle Paul's day. He's writing to a church, remember. And yet it is clear that within the confines of this church, people were being deceived, bound, as it were, by imitation. It's a little like the MGM Studios. I haven't been there, but my parents went there a number of years ago, over in Florida, is it, or Hollywood, or, or that way somewhere. You can visit the MGM Studios. I remember my dad telling me how impressed he was 
as he visited the film sets and saw these fine fronted mansions. Impressed, he says, until he looked behind the mansions and realized that they were a mere facade. There was nothing behind them. They looked real to the front, but he said as soon as you went around the back, it was just glorified cardboard propped up so they wouldn't fall. That's what the Apostle Paul is warning these Christians against. Be careful, he says, of the facade. That which looks real. Because behind it, there's no reality. There's no depth. There's no substance. There are deceptive philosophies that capture people's minds and the way they think. And they are hollow, they are deceptive, because they are based on either, says Paul, human tradition, tradition, ancient wisdom passed down from who knows where, I don't know, that's tradition, or they're based on the basic principles of this world. Interesting expression, that. Some scholars suggest that when Paul speaks of the basic principles of this world, he's referring to wind, earth, fire and water. The four basic elements that the ancient world believed in and often worshipped, of course. Well, I'm not entirely sure within this context that Paul is referring to the basic elements were earth, wind, earth, fire and water. It's more likely that he's talking about the magical powers that were prevalent everywhere in the ancient world. The problem with these spiritual realities in the so-called middle tier, of which we spoke in our last study, is that they were not based upon Christ. Literally, they are not according to Christ. That's how actually this expression of Paul's is better translated, the latter part of verse B. The principles of this world that are not according to Christ. Brothers and sisters, that is why for you and I, Christ is everything. Christ is everything. He has to be at the centre of everything. Every thought, every ambition, Every aspiration, every plan, every purpose has to have Christ at the centre. What is wrong with these alternative spiritualities, this middle tier of spirituality, uh, this sort of new age philosophy that, that isn't, isn't new? Well, Paul says that the fatal flaw is they don't depend upon Christ. They exclude Christ. They ignore Christ. They domesticate Christ. They, they, they add Christ, if you like, to the, the pantheon of God's small g. My goodness, the audacity of it. To add Christ, the Lord of the universe, to the pantheon of God's. How dare they? Yeah, before we criticise brothers, sisters, we need to be careful that we don't inadvertently do the same. We have our traditions, denominations say, and we add Christ to them. 
So long as our tradition's in place, with a little bit of Christ, we're okay. Are we really? Not at all. Paul says, be careful that you are not taken captive by anybody who is functioning apart from Christ. In contrast to all these shams, these philosophies of the world, uh, these uh, basic principles of the world, Paul writes that in Christ, verse 9, note, in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives. My brothers and sisters, we could be here all night, all week, all year. We could be here till Christ returns or calls us home. And we're never going to get our heads around this, really, are we? In Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives. How does that fullness live? In bodily form. Hmm. Not just the phrase, all the deity. No, that Paul is not just talking about the quality of divineness. The way that you and I might talk about he or she being godlike, or perhaps angels are godlike. In Jesus, I do not find a sham deity. In Jesus, I do not find an approximation of deity, but I actually find deity. I actually meet with God himself. Paul goes on to say that this deity lives in bodily form. Here again is the astonishing story of Christmas, the astonishing wonder of the gospel. The eternal God has joined the human race. He has become one of us. Why? To seek and to save us. And he did it by coming into a virgin's womb. Some Christians, it seems, these days, perhaps I should say professing Christians, profess problems with a belief in the virgin birth, or perhaps more precisely, the virgin conception. Friends, have you ever wondered why God chose to enter the human race that way? Well, allow me to present at least one angle on it. Most evangelical Christians believe that when a child is conceived in the womb, at that point in time, a new person who did not exist before comes into existence. Comes into existence in the image of God. What's that mean? Eternally. They exist as an eternal being. It's an amazing dynamic, isn't it? But when Jesus was conceived in the womb, it was not a new person coming into existence at all, remember. It is entirely consistent, therefore, to say that Jesus' conception was entirely unique and entirely miraculous because the one who came into Mary's womb existed from all eternity as God the Son. This is an astonishing claim. 
into this tiny grain of sand that we call our earth, on this vast seashore of the universe, God has personally come. John writes in John 1.14, The Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. God came in bodily form. And what's more, notice that Paul says, All the fullness lives, present tense, in bodily form. Hmm. Lives, present tense, not lived. All the fullness of the deity lives, present tense, in bodily form. Christians believe that Jesus, who became one of us, is still one of us. Hallelujah. He has joined a human nature to his divine nature, and he is one person, God and man, still forever. Paul puts it beautifully in 1 Timothy 2, 5. So there is no God, sorry, there is one God, and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Beloved, there is a man at God's right hand today. Hallelujah. I'll say that again. There is a man at God's right hand today. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives. How does it live? In bodily form. <laughs> there is someone who has taken our human nature to the very throne of God. Isn't that incredible? Some people think about the size of the universe and ask, <laughs> considering the universe. We are such a speck upon a speck upon a speck in that universe. Do we really matter? Brothers, sisters, the gospel says, Oh yes, we matter infinitely. Because God in Christ has personally come to seek and to save people like us. And he became one of us to do it. Hallelujah. Isn't that an amazing dynamic? The question occurs to me, why did Jesus do it? Why did Jesus come to earth? Well, Paul tells us, helpfully, in verse 13, because you were dead in your sins. Brothers and sisters, if there were any other way in, through, by which we must be saved then Paul would have outlined that way here, wouldn't he? But he doesn't. He doesn't give us a, a list of, um, of religious rites and, uh, that, that need to be adhered to, uh, that we might be saved. 
He doesn't uh, uh, outline any strange theological dynamics that we must learn and embrace, that we might be saved. He doesn't mention perhaps what kind of good deeds we should pursue, that we might be saved. He says that Jesus came because you were dead in your sins. People were made in the image of God, made for a love relationship with God, but because of our sinfulness, because that we are morally bankrupt, we are now alienated from God, so much so that we are in God's sight spiritually dead. We are out of relationship with Him. Paul says you were dead in your sins. That's why it's Christ came. We were dead, says verse 12, but now you have been buried with him in baptism. I love that expression, don't you? Why wouldn't we as good Baptists? Buried with him in baptism. When Paul is speaking about baptism here, he is not so much speaking about the methods or the moments of baptism, though I'm sure they're not excluded. Rather, Paul is speaking about the spiritual transformation of baptism whereby through the death of Christ, his death counts for me. I am buried with him. Hallelujah. I am buried with Christ in baptism. Therefore, Christ's death counts for me. It's applied to me. And thus my sins are dealt with because they are buried with Jesus. Then notice Paul writes the Colossian Christians that they have been raised with him through their faith and the power of God. So just as I was buried with Christ, so his death applied to me, Doug Hamilton, so says Paul, and then you were raised with, with him in faith. In faith, by your faith in the power of God. Similarly, in the next verse, Paul says, verse 13, God made you alive with Christ. So what does Christ bring? Well, he brings us spiritual new life. He brings the life of God into the soul of a man or woman. Through faith in Christ, I live again, I am born again, I am changed, I am transformed. Eternal life becomes mine, all because of the saving grace of Christ, who became flesh and remains in bodily form, even at the throne of God. When I say bodily form, brothers and sisters, not a body that is corrupted, but a celestial body, if you like. What's that look like? I don't know. All I know is that one day we will have one, hallelujah, just as Christ has one. I major on that because that is fundamental to our faith. People are being deceived by deceptive philosophy. A philosophy, a, a theology, a hypothesis that claims that Christ didn't really die in the flesh. It was kind of a spiritual thing. But he died. 
in the flesh. And then they argue, oh, but he didn't really, therefore, raise from the dead in the flesh. Well, he did raise from the dead in the flesh because he ate a breakfast at the, at the banks of the river Galilee, for instance. A spirit can't eat fish. He said to Thomas, Thomas, put your hand here. Touch. You can't touch spirit. So be careful, friends. There's a lot of spiritual language out there that seeks to invade the church and rob us of a fundamental, the fundamental Christ being in very nature God came and was born of the Virgin Mary. No question. He was born of the Virgin Mary. He came in bodily form and he died a physical death and he rose physically from the grave. Whenever I sit on a plane so I'm, I'm pushing forward there. Whenever I sit on a plane I'm not a great flyer it has to be said and so it's not long as I'm sat there waiting to take off before I begin to look around me and contemplate the dynamics. I look around me and I see tons, literally tons of metal. I look around me and see a plane full, 100, 200, 300, 300 people. Some of them aren't particularly light people either. I usually get sat next to the one who's rather larger than life. I see them packing, packing the hold of the plane full of huge cases. And I wonder, how did they get that case in? That's got to be overweight. And my brain starts ticking over thinking, there's an awful lot of weight here, isn't there? How on earth does this thing fly? After all, I think to myself, there's this thing called the law of gravity. How does it fly? However, at a certain point, as the plane zips along the runway, and I'm praying, Lord, Lord, help me. As the aerofoils are tilted in a certain manner, suddenly it leaves the ground and we begin to fly. What has happened to the law of gravity? Hmm, yeah. Has it been suspended? The law of gravity. Well, no, because if it was suspended, we'd be hanging from the ceiling, wouldn't we? No. It's still in operation. It's not that it's been suspended. We say it's been overcome. It's true. It's been superseded. Superseded. As we take to the skies. I have, at that point, come under another law. A higher law. The law of aerodynamics. And I'm flying. Brothers and sisters, when I consider me born in sin, when I consider the terrible depths of my soul, 
When I, like the Apostle Paul, consider what a wretched man I am, who will deliver me from this body of sin and death? When I consider these things, I wonder, how, how on earth can I be saved from, if you like, the law of gravity, the law of sin and death? And by the grace of God in Christ, Jesus makes me fly by the law of spiritual aerodynamics, if you like. By the law of the Spirit. Hallelujah. Isn't that wonderful? He makes us fly. In Christ, all our sins have been dealt with. In Christ, they have all been paid on the nail, as the expression goes, and quite literally, on the nail. Paul says that, doesn't he? Verse 14 tells us that Christ cancelled the written code with its regulations that were against us and that stood opposed to us. I like that expression. It's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting expression in the Greek. The Greek word translated by the NIV here as a written code is uh, quite a complicated word. It's chirographon, which could literally be translated, I owe you. Chirographon. It communicates something of an outstanding debt. It's speaking of a kind of legal bondage. It's like an IOU. Christ has cancelled the IOU. I owe you so much money. I cannot pay you that money, so I, so I give you an IOU. In this case, it isn't money that Paul is referring to. It's, it's actually a death warrant. My name is on the death warrant. I am condemned because of my sins. Paul wrote in Romans 6.23, didn't he? The wages of sin, my sin, is death. And I can't pay those wages. I don't have enough resources to pay those wages. So there's a sense in which I have to offer an IOU. It's a death warrant with my name on it. But wonder of wonders, Jesus comes along and takes my death warrant, my IOU, with Doug Allen on it, and he nails it to the very cross upon which he hangs. Isn't that something? That's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, Jesus has taken your IOU, your death warrant, and he's nailed it to his cross. He is underwriting your debt and mine. Right at the heart of the Christian faith is this concept of forgiveness. If I owe you a hundred pounds, I am in your debt. If you forgive me, however, then who has stood the bill? You have. You've forgiven me. You've stood the bill. The person who forgives pays the bill. People think forgiveness is easy until they have to forgive. 
Some people think it's easy for God to forgive. My friends, it is not easy for God to forgive. If God is to forgive, he must have found a way by which he personally underwrites the I.O.U. And he found that way in Christ. Did he not? In Christ, says Paul, God is reconciling the world to himself. The gospel, gospel does not tell me that the cross of Christ is something extrinsic to God, but rather the gospel tells me that the cross is something that happened because of God's love, from the heart of God. Christ took our death warrant and therefore, says Paul, we are free. And because you're free, he says, don't allow sham philosophies. Don't allow human traditions. Don't allow earthly authorities or powers to encroach upon your freedom, to bind you once again. You're free. Because Christ has set you free. He puts in verse 15 that, that, that Christ having disarmed the powers and authorities, I like that, he's disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing them over the cross. Friends, if that's the case tonight, if Christ has disarmed the powers and authorities, why then do so many Christians allow themselves to become subject to the very same? Your guess is perhaps as good as mine. And yet I regularly come across brothers and sisters who have found themselves bound. Bound. Deceived. Dejected. And yet Christ has disarmed the powers and authorities. Colossi was a part of an ancient world Riddled with superstition, riddled with magic practices. These were threatening and terrifying uh, the early Christians. Evil spirits seemed to hold sway even over the lives of Christians. It was a world dominated by all sorts of magic potions and rituals. Paul says in effect, look in Christ all that stuff has been nailed to the cross. In Christ, all that stuff has been defeated. Therefore, you are free. A friend of mine in Liverpool used to be a postman. I don't know how it happens, but it does. The dogs seem to have a canine committee resolution entitled, Let's Get the Postman. <laughs> My friend used to deliver uh, mail to a large house on View Road in Rain Hill, where a huge dog lived. Every time he opened the gate and walked onto the path, this dog would bound towards him, growling and barking and snarling, going absolutely wild for his flesh. Mercifully, the dog was chained. <laughs> and thus, though the dog got close to my postman friend, he was prevented from reaching the path. 
My friend would tell me that he was, of course, grateful for the chain. And he was grateful for the limited length of the chain. But on one occasion he said this to me, it always stuck in my mind. He said, but you know, Doug, whenever I go through that gate, I am not concentrating so much on the chain, but on the stake to which the chain is fixed. He's not focusing upon the chain, but the stake to which the chain is fixed. Because he said, without the stake, the chain is useless. Every morning as I go out into the dangerous world, I have to ask myself, is the stake of the cross upon which my salvation is anchored, is the stake of the cross holding firm in the ground? It is, of course, hallelujah. And so if I therefore keep to the path of Christ, looking to the cross of Christ, I can walk in liberty, I can walk free from bondage, however ugly, however terrifying the evil one seems to be, as he endeavours to encrouch and devour me. For the evil one, my friends, is chained. And that chain, if you like, is anchored to the cross of Christ that holds firm. No wonder the psalmist says, fret not because of evil men. Fret not because of the wiles of the enemy. Fret not that your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking to devour you. Fret not, my friends, though you are surrounded by this middle tier of spirituality that seeks to encrouch and impact. Fret not. Because it is chained, hallelujah. That chain is anchored to the cross. If, however, I stray from the path, if my friend strayed from the path, then inevitably the chain will be long enough for the dog to get him. This, brethren, is where the problem lies for Christians. The cross is anchored, it remains so. Hallelujah. The principalities and powers, says the Apostle Paul, they have been defeated. Hallelujah. But if the child of God strays from the path, then is it any wonder? But the world and the flesh and the devil, they encroach and they devour and they bind. Paul warns these Christians, my dear brothers and sisters, see to it that no one takes you captive by hollow and deceptive thought, by anything in point of fact that is not according to Christ. Father, we thank you for these scriptures. They're searching scriptures, but reassuring scriptures. Father, keep us 
as it were on the on the straight and narrow. It's a difficult path, no question. He didn't promise us a, an easy road. Keep us on that straight and narrow that we might not wander and therefore expose ourselves to the wiles of the enemy. And whilst on the straight and narrow Lord reassures that we need not fret, no worry. Because the state that is the cross of Christ stands firm. Hallelujah. And will until his return. And we rejoice in this reality. Amen.